Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and I'm at the house of Gary Bain, the man of mystery, the man of whom it's been said, a man of whom I would say, hello Gary. Hello, Pete, and surprised you could find your way so long since you came here. Yeah, well, you know, uh, since you've had the health and safety inspection, it's uh, safe again. Now, very special day today. It is the last in our series on this the 16th. This is the end, Durham beautiful friend. I'll say that again without you speaking over it. This is the end. This is the last. Beautiful friend. Of our 16th DLI podcast. And following this, there's going to be a very special series of podcasts. How do you say interregnum, Gary? Interregnum. A uh, very special series of podcasts, which are going to be uh, a series of around six podcasts of uh, the most popular podcasts that we've broadcast on Gallipoli. So things like V Beach and W Beach, Lancashire Landing, that sort of thing. Ooh. And the evacuation. So covering the whole game. Hunter Weston? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh. Don't think so. But um, uh, that's that's what we're going to be doing now. We're going to do a mini-series, as it were, of some of the most popular podcasts. In other words, we're having a rest. We are. We're knackered. <laughs> Phil knackered. Anyway, to bring this one to a conclusion... Yes, this is called... 16th DLI, end of days. Mm. Where do you nick that from? Don't know. Film, isn't it? Don't know. <laughs> anyway, demobilisation was much desired. Yeah, one and all, one and all. Uh, but how was it to be achieved? Now, there were some complications, weren't there, at the end of the Great War? You mean the, uh, well, <laughs> the Great War indeed, but what about the Second World War? Well... Uh, that's why I'm saying it. I'm making a contrast and comparison. It's the sort of thing that people pay money for. Yeah. Well, at the end of the Second War, there were some five million men and women in the armed services, and they had to be released back into society in a fair and equitable you, manner. Why did you choose the word released, Gary? Yes. Now, a system was devised by Ernest Bevin, who was... Minister for Labour, wasn't he? He was. Whereby they would be released in groups based on their age and the number of months they'd served in uniform. So when would you have been released? (laughs) Second day, I think. Now, when a man's group number came up, he would say farewell to his comrades. Goodbye. 
Goodbye. And make the long journey back to England, unless he was in England, in which case it'd be a short journey. Yeah. Now, here at one of the demobilisation depots, he would be fitted out with what was uh, colloquially known as a demob suit. Oh, yeah, we remember them, don't we? Uh, it was a subject of most post-war hilarity amongst ex-servicemen. Most post-war. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember people talking about their demob suit when I was a kid in the... In yeah. the uh, well, people were still wearing them in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and this is Major... I know I was. <laughs> Hand me down. Major Alan Hay. And he said this. The next thing was to be fitted out with a suit. I was greeted by a warrant officer who said, Alan Hay, what on earth are you doing? He was the man who ran a furrier's shop in South Shields. I said, great. Now I want your best suit. He said, certainly. I said, we've all talked about it and Burton suits are the best. Buy your Burton suit today with Pete and Gary's military history. Uh, he said, that may be, but come with me and I'll deal with you personally. I got a nasty shock. There was somebody amongst the suits and he said, Major Hay wants a portly 44. <laughs> I've never been a portly 44 <laughs> in my life. Uh, Gary, are you a portly 44? Well, something like that. Now, many of the men harboured dark thoughts and suspicions as to the honesty and integrity of the storeman charged with running the depots. And this is Private James Core. I had a bit of trouble there, like, you were going around picking your things and I saw someone come out with a smashing gabardine coat. I says, oh, I want one of them. You cannot have one. I said, I'm entitled to one as much as he is. We're all entitled to the same. Now I want one. He wouldn't give me one, so I caused a row about it. A major came over and said, what's the trouble? I said, I want one of them coats and he won't give me one. He said, why won't you give him one? Give him one. I got my own way there. Then they wanted half a crown for wrapping it up. I wouldn't pay them. I said, I'm away for the major again. They couldn't wrap it up fast enough. They were trying to make a living out of the lads. Now, all adorned in their lovely new demob suits and gabardine coats, uh, they were finally free of the army. Looking forward, Gary, to a brave new world. Yeah. Uh, do you think that happened? Well, no, a lot of them would be disabused of that. Uh, Why? Of that. Fancy. Well, the uh, financial pressures and debts of wartime meant that the UK was in economic distress. They lacked the money to provide the massive investments in housing and the national infrastructure that was needed to make a real difference to the prospects of returning so soldiers. Was the country essentially buggered then? Broke, I think, is how we would describe it. Mm. So this is what Ronald Elliott, your old favourite, said. Everybody's looking forward with a feeling of anticipation that there would be lots of changes, that life would be totally different. There was a feeling of hope. One had come through the war unscathed, that you were still alive, thank God. With the Labour government, things would change politically. It would be a better life for everyone and a fairer life, more equitable, and eventually there would be a better economic climate. But things were still quite tough for some years and there were still shortages. Yeah, yeah. Um, so men went back, they go back to their families and they, they, there's, there's a variety of problems there. Uh, and if you imagine, if you've been away from uh, your missus or your girlfriend for, for uh, wow, for what, five, six years, some of them, it's difficult to re-establish relationships, aren't you? Family members become strangers. And, and this is particularly the case for James Corr. And he found his brothers were unrecognisable. What was that? 
Well, this is what James Corr said. Really? We've got a quote from James Corr. Quite honestly, my brothers had grown up. When I went away, I was 21. One was 17, one was 15 and one was 13. They'd grown old. I didn't recognise them. Three years had made all that difference. Yeah, and and some of them, uh, what might have happened to their parents, would you say? Well, some of them, their parents would have died in the long years that they'd been away. Don't forget, some of them have actually been away six years plus. Yeah. What about their wives? Well, some find that their wives had um, moved on in their long absence. A few found unexpected additions to their family that couldn't have been their uh, progeny. Oh, that's a good word, progeny. But most resume their normal lives. Uh, a return to normality, if you like. I put in an extra normal there. Yes, you like a bit of normality, don't you? Now, on his return to civilian life, one man, Arthur Vizard, couldn't settle until he'd paid tribute to the men who'd fought and died under his command, because he was a major, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Now, a self-imposed mission, but one that he devoted a huge amount of energy to accomplishment. And you're going to tell us what Arthur Vizard says. A wonderful bloke he was. He says this, It was a sort of hemorrhaging. I lost 73 men killed in those three and a half years. My first job was to go round and call on the wives and mothers of those 73, as many as I could track down. I managed to call on 58, the remaining 15 I could never locate. I explained the circumstances to them, going over the ground and explaining how it all happened. I never told them of any agonising end. I always said it was clean. They got over the initial shocks, but there was a lot of sadness. I think that's marvellous that he did that. But a lot of officers do that. And we know one, uh, we'll call him Duddles, who did exactly the same with the people under his command who were uh, killed in the Iraq war. So it isn't unusual for an officer to, 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 to pay that sort of tribute to the lads. No, and, and in the case of uh, Arthur Vizard, his recognition of the suffering of the families of casualties strikes a real chord, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Now, we've got one person, a civilian, and we, we don't talk much about the wives and sweethearts in the, in the war, but we're going to look at what happened to Maria Schutt. And now, she was married to one Sydney Schutt. Uh, uh, she was born, let's put a bit of background there, perhaps, Gary, uh, born Maria Baldus, Baldusera. Uh, she was of Italian emigre parents. And there's a surprise coming up. She owned, uh, they owned uh, an ice cream business in Wheatley Hill and Thorny. That's, uh, uh, that's in the northeast, Gary. <laughs> now, after leaving her convent school, Maria worked in the family ice cream shop where she met Sydney Shute, who was uh, working in a nearby greengrocer's shop. They got married 7th of July 1937. Uh, by then, Sydney Schutt was working in a local cooperative store and their son, David Schutt, I would imagine, was, uh, was born on fe- in February 39. Uh, now, the reality of war, it, it, it hits home. When? When would it hit home? Well, suddenly when uh, Sydney's called up in August 1940. And what does Maria Schutt say about that? No need for a silly accent, I think, Gary. There was talk of a war, things were bad. Lots of them thought it would never happen. It came as a shock to lots of people. It did to me. You tried to keep happy. It's not going to happen, but it did. When he went away, he didn't want me to go with him. I wanted to go all the way to Darlington. He didn't want that. It was sad. David and I, we just waved to Dad till he was out of sight. It was frightening. You didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, now, at first, everything goes pretty well because 
Sydney shuts all right. But then some awful news comes for, for the family that Sydney had been reported missing during the Battle of Sedgenane in March 43. You remember the, the battalion was cut to ribbons then. What does Maria say about that? I was down at the shop. My mother got the letters that morning, which she couldn't read. She must have seen by the letter that it was sad news, presumed killed. She didn't show me the letter until the afternoon. When she showed me, I was shocked. I felt terrible. My dad cried. You didn't like to look at them two words, presumed killed. You wanted to think he wasn't killed. There was hope. Then, the, then we went down to tell his mum. She didn't live far away. It was a very sad day. It was a funny feeling. Every day I kept thinking about him. Well, I should hear something. If he's not dead, I should hear something. Yeah, I ought to point out that, of course, the mother couldn't read the letters. Not because she couldn't read, because she was Italian, essentially. Uh, now, um, can you imagine that? That, that all that three long terrible weeks uh, before she got a letter through from the Vatican of all places, uh, telling her that Sid Shute was alive and, and was a prisoner of war, uh, and that would have been a, a bit of consolation. But do you know what? Prisoner of war of the Nazi regime in Germany, plenty to worry about. Would you not have said? Could he survive? I mean, people die in prisoner of war camps, uh, and then suddenly the the war's over. What happens? What does Maria Shute say then? We got this telegram that he would be home in May. Everyone, if their husbands or, son or sons were coming up, they put the flags out. So we got a flag and put it out of the upstairs window. David didn't know who his dad was. He wasn't as excited as I was. I always pictured the scene when Sid was coming home, you know, what, we, what it, would it be like? This poor old man that had lost his son, he lived opposite. On the Sunday morning, he looked up the bank, then he looked up at my window. He did it twice, and I knew it was Sid coming home. But I felt sorry for the old man. To me, he was old then. He might not have been very old. When Sid came, it was early Sunday morning, and I was getting ready to go to Mass. Sid just came in, and he was worn out. He just sat down in the chair. He looked round, and he says, The kings and queens live in palaces. I made his breakfast. I think that's a wonderful quote. I really do. I really do. It's... Uh... And I feel so. Can you imagine that old man? The mixed thoughts. He must have been so jealous because they you know, he's lost his son. He sees, he sees the bloke opposite coming. You know, it, it, it's all so much. Uh, anyway, after demob, because of course he has to be demobbed. Sid goes back to work at the cooperative store and uh, back to normal life, I suppose. Um, there you go. Now the returning soldiers had changed many out of all recognition. Some teenage live wires had calmed down. I've calmed down over the years, Gary. Yeah, of course you have. Others had been brutalised by war and were no longer recognisable to their nearest and dearest. Hmm. If they were lucky, they'd manage to control themselves and move on. They'd get over this period. Uh, but they're, they're, they're just reactions to getting back to peacetime life, they're, they're, they're varied, aren't they? They're, some got more confidence from what their experience and, 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 and they, they developed a will to better themselves. So that's one way. And let's look at an example of that. And let's look at the one that we've been following all the way through the war, if you like. And that's Ronald Elliot. So what does he do? Well, he returned to his work as an accountancy clerk, but he found he'd gained a, a, a little more ambition than most ex soldiers he didn't want to settle he felt he could do more and he did and this is what he says i took the easy way out and just went straight back and they did find me a job i wasn't too unhappy with it it was fairly senior 
They came along with schemes whereby you could transfer to teacher training and get grants because they were terribly short of teachers. I was very, very tempted to be a teacher, but I had become interested in economics. And although I ought to have taken in an accountancy qualification, I did an economics degree in my spare time at home. So there I was in an accounting career with only an economics degree. Then I saw an advert advertising a job with round trees, the chocolate people, for someone with an economics degree. I applied and I got that job in the personnel department researching into labour statistics. So I moved to York. He did, and he stayed there throughout his career. He moved back to the Durham area later on. But he had a successful career, Gary. I mean, he was an intelligent man. You can tell that from the interviews. Uh, and he became head of his department. And then he left that to become chief accountant for a factory in Fordham. I'm not sure where Fordham is. And do you know, Gary, I used to see him every year. You know, I used to do lectures at the Durham Light Infantry Museum. He'd be in the front row looking at me and I'd have to behave myself. Uh, but he was just a lovely, wonderful old bloke. Um, he's dead now, I think. Well, I'm sure he is, but he was a wonderful bloke. So what else have we got? Well, another one. Let's just look at another one. No one, Charles Bray. Uh, he emerged from the army older and wiser uh, and he was determined to put the whole thing behind him uh, as best he could anyway. This is what he said. I went in the army when I was 20 and I came out when I was 26. I'd grown up a lot in those six years. I'd seen a lot of things which I, <laughs> I wouldn't have believed in 1939. It gave me a much wider and broader image of life and the world. When I came back to Buckingham, a small town like this, I looked at things rather differently. I realised there were other places in the world outside Buckingham. It widened my understanding of things tremendously, but I don't think it unsettled me. Rather, that it settled me. When I moved back to Civvy Street, I thought, well, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I just want to settle down. I don't want to do anything more exciting or go racing round. I just settled down and had a quiet life. And, and that I can understand that way of thinking. So some people want more. Some people just want to settle. Settle down. Yeah, and another one, Tom Lister, uh, he decided to opt out of the rat race. He took work driving a butcher's van before he became a salesman. And you're going to tell us what Tom Lister says. The war changed my outlook. I'd, I'd always thought of furthering my education. I knew it was unlikely I'd ever get to university. But I, I thought about taking some courses, getting some reasonable qualifications. But after the war, I'd lost the ambition to do that. I was quite happy to make a reasonable living and muddle along. Wow. Now, when Jimmy James was demobilised, that's a great name, yeah. uh, he had, at, at first, little choice but to go back to living with his parents in Rimney. Now, he'd done well in the army, rising to become a sergeant major. Uh, he'd held a responsible position. He'd commanded men in action and been respected within the battalion. But now, it seemed, he was nothing. And this is what he says. I was a single man. I just couldn't settle down. Where was I going? My parents were getting on. They didn't want me there. I didn't want to be a burden to them. I sometimes wonder if I was a little bit deranged after all these experiences in the army. I had to get over myself. I missed all the comradeship. You sold yourself to the army, but the army looked after you. I missed all of that. You didn't have that protection, the army umbrella. I was like a fish out of water for a long time. Now, Jimmy Jones was... A he had a lot about him because, well, tell Rising to Company Sergeant Major, you never did, did you? 
Um, uh, he was tempted at times to rejoin the army as a, as a regular soldier, uh, uh, and, but he decided to move on to seek employment and rebuild his life. And he moved to Birmingham, where he worked at first as a semi-clerical job in an electrical factory. Uh, what does he say about that, Gary? The bloke who was the manager was a corporal in the army, and he hated my guts because I was a warrant officer. He'd been badly treated by his warrant officer. He hated the army and he hated warrant officers. And there was I, saddled to work with him. He stopped my promotion. I eventually learned not to tell people what I was. I kept it dark. I wouldn't tell anybody because I knew that company sergeant majors and regimental sergeant majors were not popular. And on that note, while we think about the, reg the warrant officers in your life, Gary, we'll have a little break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some men struggled when their wartime careers might have led one to believe they would thrive. One such was Alan Hay, who soon realised that he was still suffering from the effects of his various wartime wounds, but found it difficult to get anyone to take him seriously. This is what he said. I still wasn't fit. Even on D-Mob leave, I was blacking out from the head wounds. I had blacked out twice digging in the garden. I saw my doctor and he said... Well, you've just come back from the war with these wounds. <laughs> I had my disabled right hand. As well, I found writing was difficult. I thought it would be easy enough. I applied for a disability pension and they found nothing wrong with my head. They looked at my hand and assessed it at £160. I said, but this is, isn't my trouble. I'm blacking out. I went back for more examinations. They couldn't find anything. They said, take your £160 
or leave it. Wow. Now, as if that wasn't enough, it was evident on his return to work that he should have secured his accountancy qualifications before he joined up. And he goes on to say this. I tried to do accountancy work. I got back into my civilian job. There was a mature secretary. She said, nice to see you, Mr. Hay. You did well and you'll soon lose that tan here as well as your rank. That was the only comforting remark. I hadn't passed my final examination. Through my army courses, I got a secondary degree, but it wasn't the one I wanted. I was having, I was really having trouble. In the end, I had a nervous breakdown in 1952. I just couldn't cope. So that's about six years in trouble after the war, where you just couldn't cope. Yet, despite all that... Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, despite that, when I asked Hay, Alan Hay, I said to him... Do you regret what you've done, joining the army, fighting for king and country, you know? Uh, And he said uh, his words were, not at all. And uh, that's, again, a testament to the sort of guy that that these were, because he had trouble. Now, Jerry Barnett also had problems in gaining his professional qualifications on his demobilisation. Although he was able to resume his studies at the School of Architecture at Liverpool University, his overall poor health because of his serious leg wounds meant that he had to drop out from the course. Yeah, but when he finally take, he eventually takes his architectural qualifying exams, but he, he then finds, and he's a, again, he's a wonderful bloke. He found his wartime experiences had given him a, a sort of inner calm. It was almost enviable. What does he say? When I was in the trenches, I used to lie there frightened to death, thinking, how dreadful this is. What's the worst experience in civilian life? And I thought... Well, the worst experience is examinations. That's the thing I hate most. When I next sit down to an examination room, I'm going to remember this and enjoy the exam. And by gum, I did. Sitting in an examination on a lovely summer day, the sun streaming in through the window, and I was sitting at a desk with a question paper in front of me. I thought, well, how comfortable this is. What a delight. It's all quiet. It cured me of a lot of grief. Now, I think that, you know, that determination to actually see the best of things compared to having some bastard shoot mortars at you in a trench is uh, quite inspiring, really. Now, uh, who else can we look at? Who else? Well, remember that chap who got really badly wounded, awfully, awfully leg wounds, uh, Richard, Richard Hewlett, often known as Dick. Yeah, his leg was left in a terrible state and he had to wear an iron caliper for a long time. His previous dreams of becoming a regular soldier after war were clearly hopeless. And he was also upset by the lack of understanding shown by his pre-war employer. His subsequent civilian career in customer services and management would be greatly hampered by his injuries to such an extent that he felt his disability pension of some 60% was no real compensation. And that's, that, that's, that's, that's bad. But there's another one. There's another one who has to cope with the ill effects of his wounds, and that's Douglas Tiffin. Remember him getting badly shot up? Um, so how did he cope with the after effects of severe wounds? And this is what he said. There were still a few patches where the stitches had been that hadn't completely healed over. I stayed on leave during this physiotherapy uh, through July and August. I threw the crutches away and had two sticks, still with a caliper. I threw one stick away. I had one stick and a caliper. By September, the caliper was taken off, but I still had a stick. So it took me a year to get anything like back to normal. It was never completely better. I'd been a good athlete, a good rugby player. I asked the doctor... Will I play rugby again? He said, 
Laddie, you just wait and see and just be thankful you're able to walk. It was soon obvious to me I would never play rugby again. But the longer I've gone on, the more I've said to myself, by God, you were a lucky bloke. I am. That would have been the end of me if it had hit the artery. 17 hours without medical attention. A couple of blokes who were willing to stand by me. Remember they two dragged him back. That's luck. And again, wonderful. Just, yeah. just... I mean, his philosophical acceptance of his situation is quite marvellous. Many men found that their army experiences un had unsettled them and made them reluctant to return to a civilian job that they now detested. Now, in Tony Cameron's case, this uh, was the prospect of resuming work as a coal miner. And this is what he said. You could go back to your own job. That was for sure, because that was guaranteed. That's guaranteed by the government. All you had to do when you finished your leave was go and report, and they had to find a place to set you on, which in my case was the pit. I had no intention of going there, not if I could avoid it. Uh, could he avoid it? Well, as, as we know... You can't always choose your destiny in post-war Britain. And Cameron would have to suffer a couple of years as a coal miner before he rejoined the army in 1947. Yeah, I remember him. I remember him well telling me. Uh, and the interview went on and on. Not, I don't mean it like that, but it, it went on. It was He, he served in Palestine, uh, back into Greece, served in Germany, and then and then he got married. What, what impact can marriage have on a man? Well, it can certainly curtail your sex life. Yes. <laughs> You remember that look in the eye of your wife when she wants sex? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but marriage convinced him that he had to settle down and return to work down the pit in 1952. Now, let's look at Les Thornton, who was one of our favourites, my favourite especially. I didn't interview him, but he, he was a great guy. Um, it was uh, done by Harry Moses, uh, one of our interviews. He, he decided to rejoin the army. He, he just couldn't settle down outside, uh, uh, and he wanted to go back. Uh, why did he redo it? Well, why, why do you think he did it? What, what could trigger it? Well, uh, the trigger for him was that his father died in an accident just as the 16th DLI moved to Vienna. As a result... Thornton was sent back to England for 28 days compassionate leave. And from there, he reported to Brantspeth Castle Depot, where he was talent spotted as an experienced NCO. Well, you have a talent spotted, doesn't <laughs> you? You are so predictable. <laughs> it's what Leslie Thornton said. Colonel McBain was a colonel there. He was my... We went there. Uh, Brantford Castle, do you remember? Yes. Interesting castle, isn't it? Uh, colonel McBain was a colonel there. He was my company commander before the war. I was due to finish in the army. I'd signed on for seven years when I first signed, but I'd done eight by the time the war was over. Colonel, he's a pre-war regular. Colonel McBain said, are you going to sign on, Sergeant Major? I said, well, I don't know. If I could stop here for a couple of years, I suppose I will. A thing came out that said, anybody signing on for the full-time plus three, that's for 22 years plus three, will get £25 in a civilian suit. Well, that was a lot of money then. I thought about it, spoke to my wife. What about it? So I signed on for 25 years. I presume that's how she told him, no, he wasn't having sex. <laughs> Now, he had a successful career, eventually transferring to the Somerset Light Infantry, with whom he would serve in Korea in 1951. Now, also following that path was his friend Tommy Chadwick, who thrived in the army, serving in both Malaya and Korea, and rising to be Regimental Sergeant Major with the 1st uh, Battalion DLI before his eventual retirement in 1966. Can't get any higher than BRSM of your regiment, can you? Um, Unless you're the colonel. Oh, sorry, I meant, yes. <laughs> All right, Gary. <laughs>
in some ways the RSL. Now, one young man to make the grade as a soldier should be no surprise oh, to anybody. Who is it? Russell Collins. Of course. Now, he served with the 2nd Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry in Greece from 1946 to 1947. It, yeah, he then made a successful application for a regular commission. He, dis- you know, uh, he, he, uh, and after a long career, he finally retired as a lieutenant colonel in 1973. His whole life was bound up in the army and, and just service to his country. Uh, one thing I would say... Uh, I did a lot of the interviews and I've listened to all of them, but if there's one man that the men all respected that that that, uh, that served under him, it was uh, it was Winkler Collins. He was a great soldier. I am surprised that he never got any more promotion than that, if you think about it. Mm. Yeah, others, equally distinguished soldiers, went in an entirely different direction, seeking to forget the army and all they'd experienced during the war. Now, the one that springs to my mind is James Drake. Do you remember? He was the one who got DCM, the Distinguished Conduct Medal, for exceptional gallantry at the Battle of Sejanane in 1943. And we talked a lot about him. Uh, What did James Drake, uh, ex-Sergeant James Drake, say? Once I moved out of the army, that was it. I didn't want to know any more. I never joined the British Legion or any of them. I washed my hands of it completely. I didn't even join the Salvation Army. Uh, that's a classic old soldier's joke, but yeah. Uh, and he moved to join his brother and he ended up setting up a, a successful painting and decorating business in Blackpool, of all places. And he became a prominent figure in society and he even became a Conservative councillor for many years. Uh, but one thing was certain, what would you say that? His soldiering days were most certainly over. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what's one thing that would be really important to these men from the the, the 16th DLI? Uh, the, 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 what can you think would be important? Well, it was the formation and enduring success of the 16th Durham Light Infantry Association. Now, regiment, this is a battalion. There's a Durham Light Infantry Association, but there's, this is a battalion one. Now, they'd cropped up all over the country after the Great War, and it was exactly the same in the Second World War, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, they were the best way for old comrades to maintain contact with, with each other in a world without the internet or even many telephones in the years immediately following the, uh, the war. And this is what Arthur Vizard said. I hadn't, hadn't been home long and I went down to Dorset to see the Colonel with Alan Hay and Ronnie Sherlock. We got together and I had the nominal roles and we, cre- we created the first edition of the 16th DLI address book, which was sent to every man. It contained a note from Colonel Worrell saying how proud he'd been of us because we never really had a proper farewell parade. Well, remember, they were, and they just sent home one more by one almost. I hope he destroyed it because of the Data Protection Act. Yes, of course he would. Yeah. Actually, I've got a copy. <laughs> now, Sam Cordron remembered the first meeting of the 16th DLI Regimental Association. At the time, he was working on the railways based in Bradford, and it seemed to him he was doomed to miss out. And what, what did he say? Tell us, tell us all, Gary. The association officials made the first one in Leeds because that was the centre of England. There were so many people in the Durham Light Infantry from all over England. Leeds was easy for transport. All the trains went to Leeds from all over the country. It was in the town hall, a lovely summer's day in August 1947. I wasn't going because I couldn't afford the rail fare. 
At work, we were doing a repair on one of the, the mining engines on the Saturday. We'd been working all morning on this engine. I was talking to this man. He was a lot older than me. He'd been in the First World War. I says, I never ought to be here today, struggling about with this blinking job. My brother's gone to Leeds and it's our 16th Battalion Durham Light Infantry reunion dinner. The first one. What? Army reunion? I says, yes. He says, well, look, I'll tell you now, Sam. Put them tools down. I'll look after the rest of the work. We've done what's necessary. You get off. You've got plenty of time to get there. There's plenty of trains go to Leeds from Rotherham. Get off. You'll thoroughly enjoy it. Something you'll be sorry you missed if you don't go. All those pals, you're going to miss them. If you miss the first one, you'll not go to the next one. You'll forget all about it. He'd been to quite a few of his own regimental reunions. He says, you'll never be sorry for going. You go. I went. And, yeah, the, the, the reunion, that was stupid, having them in Leeds, really. And they, they switch them from Leeds to Durham soon. And do you know what? I, I remember interviewing Sam Cordron. He went from then on uh, and he just attended the 50th reunion when, when I actually interviewed him. I, I did that interview. Um well, why a regiment? I mean, you have contact, but we've got the internet now. You keep in contact with your old comrades, mainly through, uh, well, Facebook. Mediums. Mediums. Mm. Oh, mediums. They're not all dead, Gary. <laughs> well, we're getting to an age. Yeah, I mean, the regimental associations, they allowed them to mix together, reliving old experiences, but also remembering those that had been lost. Now, Ken Lovell, he worked post-war as a teacher, but he never forgot the comradeship of the 16th DLI. He said this, although the war was pretty terrible, I had some pretty rough experiences. I don't think it's something I would have missed. It taught me an awful lot about other people. It taught me an awful lot about myself. I think it made me a much more compassionate person than I had been. A much more understanding and tolerant person. Certainly the comradeship that existed isn't found anywhere else. The comradeship of battle is something that lives with you for the rest of your life. Wow. Laurie Stringer who we, we met in the latter part of the podcast. He was a, a, a relative latecomer to the 16th DLI, but he'd played his part in some hard-fought battles. Now, he became the first historian of the battalion. He wrote the first history of the Durham Light Infantry based on the regimental uh, war diaries and, of course, his own experiences in that last year. Uh, he was a, what you call a true patriot, and he, even when I interviewed him in his old age, Gary, he was still up for a scrap. He, but he, most of all, he was proud of what he and the men had achieved then. And this is what he said, Laurie Stringer, I will always regard it as a privilege to have played a very small part in helping to resist, to fight against one of the greatest evils that the world had ever known. That really sums it up. I would not have missed my army experience, and I'm grateful for having had it. If the same situation came again, this is foolish, of course, because of my age, I would do precisely the same thing as I did before. Oh, yeah, I'm normally Laurie String. Yeah, and I wanted to do him, Gary. We changed it round, if you recall, in yes, your last well, podcast. I rejected your suggestion. Yeah, don't remember them as old or frail. Oh. Remember them as they were. That's good advice, Gary. Determined men, sometimes frightened, but fighting as best they could for their country and a cause they believed in. Now, plenty of people, they, they exude cynicism these days, uh, but I think we, we both believe that amidst all... Uh, there's lots of cross-currents in 20th century politics, aren't there? But the Second World War, what for, what for you was it? Well, it was most definitely a, a fight against fasc fascism. To us, 
these men are true heroes, more so for being ordinary men. Because they were ordinary men they who were. did extraordinary things. Things that we cannot imagine having the physical or mental strength to endure. The, the only sad thing is to think that these wonderful men are, well, they're all dead now, most of them. If not all of them, but the, the, remember when we went to Durham on that uh, that 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 visit? Oh, in the little square. Yeah, and what do you remember seeing? There? I remember pointing it out to you. Yeah, it was that uh, idealised bronze statue which represented all of the soldiers of the Durham Light Infantry, and it stands proud right in the the, the market square yeah. there. And when I look at that, it's 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 just to represent everyone. But for me, that represents Ronald Elliot and Russell Collins. People like him, uh, Alan Hay, who suffered after the war, those wounded lads, it, that's, that's what, that's what it, it sort of conjures up to my mind. And they've nearly all got, they've, I think they have all gone, actually. Uh, um, what would you say? How do you feel about that generation? Well, it's an amazing generation and we must remember them. But how few of us seem to really care whilst they were still alive? What, you mean they were just the old bugger in the corner, rabbiting on about the war? That, that, that's perhaps not what we think, but it's quite... A lot of people think that. And this is what Leslie Brown says. Nowadays, you can't talk to other people about it. In the main, they don't want to know. And you don't want to become a bore. It's only with people who have been through it that you can talk to and understand what it's all been about. And I think that's the absolute, you know, when people say, oh, uh, he never wanted to, you know, he never spoke about it. Well, it's like in uh, uh, Only Fools and Horses, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Albert banging on about the war all the time. But they never actually forgot the terrible experiences that, that, that they'd gone through. And they also never forgot the lads who never came back. And that was, a, as they got older and older, they realised what those lads had lost. And this is what Edward Gray said. When you commit a murder in the king's name, it never leaves you. Never, ever leaves you. It was murder. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't have been there. I suppose a lot of them would feel the same. It never leaves you. You live a life of regret when you've done that sort of thing. You never forget the faces. I'm 72. Those lads should have been 72 now, but that's the way it was. And and they felt that as they got, I mean, that was, you could work out roughly when that was done. That was done in the 80s, that interview probably. But they, they, it, it was, they were a long time dead, those lads who got killed in the war. And they lost, they lost 60 years 50, 60, 70 years of life. And uh, and we pay tribute to them. And I hope this little uh, project, uh, podcast series we've done on the 16th DLR, which are not a special regiment, are they? They're not no. a special battalion. They're, no. They're just an ordinary battalion. But in a way, that makes it more dramatic because that's what people all over the country were doing in the fight against fascism. I, I think we all owe them a lot. We do, and it emphasises the fact that they are ordinary men from ordinary backgrounds, accountants, miners, shopkeepers... Ordinary men doing extraordinary things. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?